consider what God has to say to us this morning. Have you ever been in the midst of a TV show, a series, a movie, or perhaps a book, and you're thinking at some point in it, I'm really enjoying this, but here and there, there are some bits I'm not entirely thrilled about. Is it going to be worth it for me to carry on and to finish this? The hours that I'll invest, perhaps over weeks or days or months. Have you ever gotten to the end of one of these and thought, how could this all have ended so poorly? What were the writers thinking? Well, recently, my wife and I were in a conversation with a friend about books, and we were talking about one that both Rachel and I have come to love. It's a book called Island of the World. Uh, now, it's a, it's a rather thick uh, historical fiction novel at about 850 pages. It gives Dostoevsky kind of a run for his money. Um, it takes place in Yugoslavia during World War II and just after as well. So it was a very, very difficult time in the history of that nation. It's a long book, and there are some incredibly difficult stories to read contained within it. And you begin to wonder during the book, is it worth it? Is it worth it to carry on? Ultimately, it's a redemptive story, not to spoil anything for you. But as we were talking with a friend about this book and some of the things involved in it and that it takes quite a long time to get through it, and we're recommending the book to her, she said, oh, well, that's, that's fine because oftentimes if I'm reading a book, what I'll do is I'll flip to the very end, read the last bit of it and see if I like it, and then I'll know whether I can continue on or not. I want to know how it's going to end before I commit to it. Well, in the Gospel of John, these, we're, we've reached the point where, where we are at Jesus' final formal teachings before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, and death. Jesus is going to give the disciples an advanced look into what is coming later in the story. For their good, he's going to flip ahead, if you will, a few chapters, so they know what to expect, what's coming. Now, as we start reading, start looking at this passage, we have both a disadvantage this morning and an advantage. The disadvantage that we have is of spreading an evening's teachings over several weeks on Sunday mornings. Everything from chapter 13 to 16 would be as fresh in the disciples' minds as Jesus washing their feet that evening and him reframing the uh, Passover feast for what it should have been, a foretaste, a look at what would happen in the new covenant. The advantage that we have is you and I can simply flip a couple pages ahead and see what's going to happen next. We can look back on recorded history and look ahead to the events that would then follow. Yet here Jesus gives his disciples a look at what can, excuse me, what will happen in the future so they know that they can fully trust him. In this passage, we'll see that Jesus guarantees his followers deep grief and sorrow and a greater and deeper joy. Now, I can anticipate what some of you are thinking. Deep grief and sorrow? Awesome. Sign me up. But just hold on. The greater and deeper joy is worth it. Before we dive in, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. We thank you that it truly is wonderful and helps us to know you and see you clearer. 
We pray that you would reveal to us wonderful things in your word. Lord, that would cause us to walk closer with you, to revere you more, to deepen our joy, and to give you the glory that you deserve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's rewind just a little bit. It's the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And the scriptures say, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the last. Jesus washes their feet in an act of servanthood and tells them to live as servants of one another. He shares the Passover meal, revealing and reframing it as it was meant to be, a foreshadow of the sacrifice of God's Messiah the new and better covenant that God was making with his people. And then he begins to talk a lot about going away. In fact, between chapters 13 and 16, either directly or indirectly, his leaving is mentioned 22 times. He says to his disciples, you will be hated. And he reminds them over and over again, don't be afraid, don't fear. He tells them to follow his teachings, to bear fruit, in obedience, and that that would lead to their joy. He reminds them to demonstrate God's love to one another. He tells them that he will be sending the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, to empower them and guide them in truth. And, he says, he will be coming back to take them to a glorious future, and that all of this will lead to their joy. So that's where we are at this point where the scriptures pick up in chapter 16, verse 16. First, Jesus tells his followers they will have momentary, deep grief and sorrow. At verse 16, it says, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of this, at this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean in saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Jesus is turning the page for them to see what's coming next. He's speaking of his approaching arrest, crucifixion, and death. He's speaking to them about these events that they, they don't even fully comprehend at this point. Again, here's where we have the advantage of seeing what's coming next, yet they didn't fully get it at that point. And he says in verse 20, Truly I say to you, and in the original language, it's even stronger. It says, amen, amen. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm guaranteeing you this. This will absolutely happen. He says, you will weep and mourn and grieve. I guarantee you. And then Jesus gives an analogy to describe what this grieving will be like. Verse 21, he says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. 
Women have this really unique perspective that us men do not. Jesus is using this analogy. Yes, there is going to be great difficulty and pain, but it will be worth it. Expectant mothers face delivery, facing delivery often face a common fear or anxiety. How in the world am I going to get through this? How in the world is this even possible? The contrast that Jesus is making is of how something so horrible and difficult and frightful can lead to incredible joy. Any mother or new father, for that matter, will tell you that that child's value is so immensely great. The mom will say that it was worth all the pain she went through to have that child. And in fact, a little bit later on, many of them will all often say, let's have another one. The disciples were going to be affected by a grief and a sorrow that they didn't think they would be able to get through. Yet, amen, amen, Jesus says, it will turn to joy. He guarantees that it will turn to joy. I tell you, Jesus says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The world is rejoicing at the same time of the disciples' grief. And commentator John Gill says, the world shall rejoice because that which is the grief of saints is the joy of sinners. Now imagine how upset or indignant, frustrated or angry you would be if during the labor of your spouse, your sister, dear friend, a group of people arrived in the room and began to laugh at her pain and mock her. To mock her cries of anguish saying, you wanted this baby, this is what you get. Or to say, oh, listen, she's crying out for help in her pain and distress. That's what happened at the crucifixion. The religious leaders came along and mocked the pain that Jesus was going through. The world rejoiced and mocked in the hour of the disciples' greatest grief and sorrow. And in our world today, we can clearly see examples of the world rejoicing and celebrating the things that bring grief to the followers of Christ and to the heart of God himself. Later, 1 Peter 4.4 tells us of the world's value system. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Jesus tells his followers they will have momentary deep grief and sorrow. You can imagine his disciples flinching at this hard teaching that their master is promising them, guaranteeing them deep grief and sorrow. They had heard other hard teachings of his in the past, and their response then when Jesus said, do you want to leave, was where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, every indication shows us that they still don't fully understand the horrors of the upcoming 24, next 24 hours and indeed the next few days and the agony and the fear that will immediately follow Christ's death. Yet in the face of this guarantee of momentary deep grief and sorrow, Jesus tells his followers they will have a greater, deeper, and lasting joy. Again, in verse 20, he started it off by saying, Amen, Amen, I guarantee you this. Your grief will turn to joy. And, he says, no one will take away your joy. 
This isn't a fleeting gladness that Jesus is talking about, but a deep, sustaining joy, a joy based on the reality of what God does and promises. It's not a temporary happiness based on circumstance. Just as Jesus guaranteed deep grief and sorrow, he now guarantees their greater, deeper, lasting joy. And though he is talking to the disciples, I wonder how many of us, excuse me, how many of us in this room would say, yeah, I know the times where I've had incredibly deep grief and sorrow. Or maybe you're even in one of those right now. Well, Jesus was pointing them to his resurrection and return. Again, you and I can easily flip over a few pages and read of the resurrection. In fact, for many of us who've been in the church for a while, the resurrection of Jesus is so familiar, we may not fully appreciate the depth of the joy, the wonder, and exhilaration that the disciples had the first moment they saw him after he had been raised from the dead. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And indeed, the disciples' weeping began the night of Jesus' arrest, and their rejoicing came because of that first Easter Sunday morning. While this passage is most likely about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, where he talks about going away for a little while, coming back after a little while, I think it's safe to say that this also applies to his ascension and his return. You and I don't physically see Jesus now, and there are many griefs and sorrow, not only because of the sin in the world, but because, as Jesus said in the first part of chapter 16, because of the persecution his followers would face. Andy walked through this last weekend. Yet one day Christ will return, and those griefs and sorrows will turn to an everlasting joy. As the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4, our, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to keep the end in mind. We have to remember the end of the story. And another scripture says, Jesus, for the joy set before him willingly endured the cross. Commentator Matthew Henry says of this passage, believers have joy or sorrow according as they have or have not a sight of Christ and the tokens of his presence with them. In other words, what he's saying is our experience of joy or sorrow can be affected by whether our eyes are fixed on Christ. So let's turn our eyes on Jesus. Well, how else does the passage go on to say that we will have an even greater and deeper joy. In verse 23, Jesus says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, again, amen, amen, I guarantee you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Amen, amen, I guarantee it. Our joy is found in part in the fact that we can pray directly to the Father in heaven, and he will hear and answer our prayers. Verse 25, Jesus says, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I no longer will use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, he says, you will ask in my name. 
I am not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Verse 26 is kind of interesting where Jesus says, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Because we read elsewhere in the scriptures that Jesus lives daily to make intercession for us. So what is he saying? I think Jesus is telling his followers that they now have direct access to the throne of grace and mercy to present their requests. They don't need a human priest, a human mediator. They can go directly to God the Father with their requests. Maybe you grew up hearing that you needed a priest to make intercession for you. Maybe you grew up in a faith that said you had to repeat certain prayers over and over and over again to gain the attention of God. Maybe you were told you had to pray to saints to pray for you because you weren't holy enough, or you had to pray to Mary, the mother of Jesus, simply so God would hear you. No, Jesus says to his followers, this isn't the case. Because of the work that he has done and is going to do, they will have direct access to the Father themselves. And think about that, believers. We have that same ability. It wasn't just for those 12. We can come directly to our Father with our requests. Why is this? Verse 27, Jesus says, The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've given your life to him, if you're a follower of his, do you realize what an immense privilege this is? That we can come directly to God's throne with our requests? Christian, have you lost the sense of wonder at how vast God's love is towards you? Do you marvel at his work through Christ and how that changes our identity and our standing before the God of the universe? Do you see God's extraordinary love toward us? During this night, Jesus has already said, through him there's a new covenant coming, a new way of relating to and being right with God. He's told them he's going to prepare a new and glorious dwelling place for them, that we will be with God, his followers. Jesus has already said he's sending down his spirit who will dwell inside us, not just to visit every now and then, but permanently take up residence in every believer to empower us, to comfort us, to guide us into truth, and yes, to sanctify us as well. And in addition, we have the privilege of being able to come straight to the Father's throne. Our Heavenly Father delights to give us that which is for our good and for his glory, that which leads to our joy being made complete. His motivation, Jesus says, is this extravagant love toward us. In fact, John will later write in one of his letters, come and see and take notice. Behold, what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. If you're a Christian, these things are true of you. Rejoice. Give thanks. That's the type of joy that's an anchor for our souls. God invites his children to come boldly before his throne, and Jesus is not guaranteeing trivial blessings as we present our requests, but those things which are of the Father's will. We need to remember, too, that prayer is not just about bringing a checklist to God. 
But prayer is for us to know our Father, to know his heart, to know his will. As another commentator puts it, Christ is the mediator between God and man, the way of access unto him. Whatever is asked is to be asked on account of his blood, righteousness, and sacrifice. And then there is no doubt of success. Whatever is asked will be given. See, we need to remember as we come to God in our prayers that though we have this immense access, still our heart's disposition should be the same as that of our Lord. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 29, Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even excuse me, that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Well, why the sudden change? We talked about this a little bit at our staff meeting. We don't fully understand why the disciples all of a sudden say, ah, now we get it. We fully understand what you're saying. There may be something culturally in the text that we don't understand, or it could very well be that given the following verses, they still weren't fully understanding what Jesus said. Oftentimes, the disciples would hear something and then make bold assertions. When Jesus said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, they started arguing about bread. When Jesus talked about Lazarus' death, the disciples said, let's go so that we may die with him. They may not have fully understood, but yet we're trying to assert that they did. And Jesus replies to their confident assertion, do you now believe? It's really more of a statement in the original language. He's saying to them, at this moment, this very moment right now, you may think you believe, but a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. The fear, the horror, and the agony of the cross will cause all of Jesus' closest friends to desert him. And just as the disciples flee to be alone because of their fear, this in turn will leave Jesus alone because of their fear. Even in this moment, the Son of God can identify with them in their circumstances. Then we come to verse 33, probably the capstone of this passage. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Earlier in chapter 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives is not like the world's peace. Beyond a momentary peace of mind, Jesus is helping the disciples and likewise us see that because he knows the future, they can have a peace in trusting him with their eternal destiny. Because he is the Lord over all things, they can have a solid peace. I have told you these things in advance, Jesus said, so when they come to pass, you will know that I am who I said I am. In me you may have peace, Jesus said. This peace is in him and in him only, in his person, his blood, his righteousness, his sacrifice. Those things speak of our pardon, our peace, our atonement. In me, you may have peace, 
It's that idea that harkens back to the Hebrew word shalom, when everything is right, when everything is as it should be. It's a friendly, it's a resolved, it's a joyful relational status between people. It's a confidence in the future that is to come, which can reframe our present circumstances. It's a peace that has no fear of judgment, but assurance that we will be with Christ in a glorious eternity. Jesus says you will have persecution, affliction, distress, travail that may seem overwhelming. You may even think, how will I get through this? And he's talking about trials and persecutions, not just disappointments, which challenge our faith, but as Andy talked about, the exclusion that the disciples would face, being put out of the synagogue, or maybe for some of you being laid off or sacked, because, made redundant because you've been outspoken in your faith. And not only exclusion, but execution. His disciples would face death. Even in trial, suffering, difficulty, and troubled mind, our peace is in who Christ is and what he has done. It's settled. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He's saying that he has conquered all earthly things and affairs. Christ has final and total victory over sin and Satan. His victory will come at the cross, yes, and ultimately upon his return. But so certain is the victory he is about to achieve that he refers to it as though it's already been done. I have overcome the world. We know Jesus will have the final victory. But what does he tell his followers in the midst of overwhelming persecution, affliction, and distress? He says this, be of good cheer, some translations say. Others say, be stout-hearted. Take heart, others say, or have courage. Now, Jesus isn't just offering up some trite little cliche, cheer up, mate, stiff upper lip. He's using this word in the, that in the Greek is tharseite. It's the same word as when the disciples were totally in distress when they saw Jesus walking to them on the water. It's maybe a word that in our difficulties and trials we could learn to say to one another. It's a word that carries the connotation that this, the inner confidence that we have is the result of what God is doing in us, not our own striving to, to pull ourselves up or to give ourselves some sort of man-made confidence. It's an inner confidence produced by the Spirit not something that we can muster up in our own strength. It's a God-given confidence so that we can with confidence and full conviction say, it is well with my soul, even in the most troubling circumstances. So maybe it is a word that we could say to one another every now and then. Let's try it out, actually. Why don't you, try, why don't you turn to someone and just say, Tharseite. Go ahead. Okay, one more time. Say it again. Tharseite. Yes. With conviction. Remember, Jesus is guaranteeing us a joy that no one will ever take away. So, believer, we can stand secure. We have a solid confidence that will sustain us. We don't know even what political things will happen 24 hours from now. 
I mean, these last few months have just been turbulent, haven't they? And yet Jesus knows all things. He knows the end of time. And he has told us the things that we can be sure of, allowing us to flip to the end, as it were, knowing that our commitment to him will not be in vain, nor end in disappointment. By his resurrection, he proved that he is who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And he knows and orders all things. He is sovereign over past, present, and future. He's given us the advocate to dwell within us, that helper, the Holy Spirit. And Christ's victory over the cross assures us of his victory over all things at the end of time and a glorious eternity with him. So yeah, just as the first followers, we may have momentary, deep grief and sorrow, but Jesus guarantees a greater, deeper, lasting joy and everlasting joy. I have told you these things, he said, so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, Tharsei, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for your incredible and vast love toward us. Thank you, Lord, that we do not walk alone. Jesus, that you told us you would not leave us as orphans. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you do know the end of all things. And Lord, your victory over the cross was so sure you could say you've overcome. And Lord, your victory over all things at the end of the time is so sure we know that you shall overcome. Help us to remember, Lord, the immense blessings that you have poured out on us. Father, because of your love and because of the work of Christ on our behalf, in whose name we pray. Amen. Claire is going to come forward and lead us in our prayers this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that no matter what troubles we face in this world, we know that Jesus has overcome the world and will reign forever. Thank you that this gives us great confidence, even in the midst of the current political turmoil and uncertainty. Lord, we pray for the election of a new prime minister and ask that you would give those voting great wisdom and discernment. Help whoever is appointed to make good decisions for the common good. We also pray for Liz Truss and her family as she steps down as Prime Minister. Please put good friends and counsellors, including Christians, around her at this time. We pray for all members of Parliament that they would seek to uphold high standards of service and integrity in office. We pray in particular for Christian MPs and ask that you would help them to be ambassadors for Jesus in Westminster, distinctive in the way they speak and act. In this difficult time, embolden them to share the reason for the hope that they have. Lord God, whilst we can despair of British politics, 
We thank you that we do enjoy democracy, peace and religious freedom, which for many countries are a pipe dream. With the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party concluding, we do pray for steps to be made to undo the tightening restrictions on religious freedom and pray that you would help house church leaders to remain both wise and courageous. Please continue to grow your church in China and raise up new believers, particularly young people, despite opposition. We also want to pray for Ethiopia as many continue to face severe food shortages and famine. Please would food and supplies get to the most vulnerable. Please bring the rainfall that is needed and might this lead to abundant harvests. Please would you enable Christians to hold out the gospel hope in these challenging times. Lord God, we thank you for the many mission partners that we have as a church and ask that you would encourage them all this week with your steadfast love. We thank you for our partnership with Alex in the Middle East. Thank you that you're giving him wonderful gospel opportunities and people to pastor and disciple. Please continue to protect him and those he ministers to and use him mightily for your kingdom and glory. With half term this week, we pray for all those away that you would give them rest and refreshment. We particularly pray for our elders and staff team as well as their families and ask that this week would give them time to recharge and be refreshed in you. Thank you for all they do for us and for their faithful leadership and love for us as a church. We pray for any in our church family who are struggling at the moment and ask that you would help us as a church to care and support them well. Give all of us a greater and deeper joy in the Lord, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.